This is Adam Chartoff, your host of FilmWax Radio. Uh, this is episode number 752. It's Friday, uh, the 24th of February. Uh, and uh, this is, I think, like the third or third episode now here at Radio Free Rhinecliffe that we're doing. Yeah. Number three. That's Matt and Jen are here. And this is an exciting episode because, you know, there's a kind of, uh, I feel compelled on some level to make it, uh, feel like more of a re regional or bring in more regional folks, you know, and, or emphasize regional businesses in the <clears throat> film and media. So <clears throat> I know Chris through, just through the business, I, I hadn't met him before, Chris Silva, who is the executive director of the Bardavon and Poughkeepsie and UPAC in Kingston. And, <clears throat> and so, you know, through my radio job, uh, there's been interaction because he is, or the Bardavon UPAC is a, one of our sponsors there. But, um, you know, I didn't, I, I was anxious to kind of get to know him and I had no idea about he had such a incredible background, I mean, in theater. And it's, so, uh, I was very excited to bring him on. And, uh, do you, you guys, uh, you know about him or his career at all? I'm looking forward to the interview. I <laughs> think you should. It's really good. He's got, it's, it's, and it's interesting because I was a little, I'm a little younger than him by, I don't know how many years, but he was in New York and he was, you know, producing plays, uh, with Joe, Joe Papp at the public theater. This, he was primarily, his main background has been theater, but then when he came over and took over, uh, the Bardavon and UPAC, he it would, you know, those are music venues primarily, although they do some other things. Uh, so, uh, anyway. Uh, so I didn't know him from the theater world until I started talking to him. And I realized that I read his bio. So I think he's an, a, another ideal guest for Radio Free Ryan Cliff is what I'm saying. That's a great idea. Yeah. We'll reach out to Norm. Yeah. <laughs> about, about getting him on Norm show too? Yeah. yeah why not? Um, yeah. We're shameless. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Listen, rotate the guests. <laughs> you know, I, I want to bring on, uh, I don't know, I'll bring on some of the guys from... Uh, uh, the Lincoln Project on my show. I think that's and a great Matt Friend, idea. Maybe oh, Matt Friend. Yeah, I should bring him on. Matt Friend would be a great guest. And then yeah. you can do video. Yes. And I, I, I think I'm, this, I'm throwing, what's the term? I'm, I'm throwing in uh, like a, making a, a feud here. Pitch. Maybe. No, no. This is like the beginning, could be a beginning of a feud. I'm, uh, I think I can do better impressions than than Andy. Really? Yeah, I Could so. you do your... Yeah, Andy, um, do one. Do it. Well, I, you know, I was just asked to do James Mason on my show the other day. And of course, a very current topical <laughs> reference. <laughs> but, but it was just asked by a filmmaker who's uh, Australian, you know, but he's he lives in Hudson Valley. This is another guy I can bring on eventually. Another, another filmmaker who's in the uh, New Pulse area. Excellent. And he asked me to do my, because he, he'd been on before, and he asked me again to do James Mason. I'm always happy to do my James I, Mason. I want to hear a little more James Mason. Oh, Lolita, don't play with those dirty boys. They're only after one thing, Lol. Lol. Yeah, I do impressions. That's excellent. Do you have Thank any you. others in your arsenal? Uh, David Nivens. Hello, this is David Nivens. <laughs> <laughs> All the same. Uh, Similar. Sometimes, fellas. 
Oh, good. Very good. That's very good. Thank you. Yeah, I can do a little. I can do a bunch. I I, I don't know. I have to kind of uh, remember which ones I do. Cause can, I, can you do Mike Pence? <laughs> <laughs> I just don't even like the way you framed that. You know, I could do a better. I could do a better impression of a fly on 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 his head. I think than Mike Pence. Oh my God. I'd rather be the fly in his head than him. Me too. Definitely. Definitely. What do you think, Mother? <laughs> it's a good uh, start. Anyway, so this is this is uh, the big Chris Silver show. Uh, people should go check him. Check out part of the Bardavon. I'm going to two shows at UPAC next week. Yeah, which ones? There's uh, Sean Calvin, Mark Cohen, and Sarah DeRose together, I guess. Fantastic. You know, and then the next night, drumroll, Elvis Costello. Oh, that's big. Ooh, I, so, saw, I saw Elvis Costello at UPAC. You did? I have. Oh. He's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, I think he has. He might have longevity if he keeps it up mm. in his career. You, you know? think? <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, he just did like 13 nights down in the city, I think, I heard, or 13 nights at the Gramercy or something. Anyway, so both shows, UPAC, so it's nice. It's another perk, of course, for me, but but I'm, I love it. So I love going to shows. Fantastic. Yeah. So anyway, this is it. Let's go to my conversation with, uh, again, executive director of both the Bardavon and UPAC, Ulster Performing Arts Center in case it, this is Chris... Uh, Silva here on FilmWax. It's really great to meet you, Chris. Yeah. As opposed to the occasional email back and forth from the station. Yeah. And I thought you'd be a particularly great guest for Radio Free Rhinecliff. It's a great, uh, a group rather of really great people producing some really great shows. Right. So, so thanks for agreeing to do this. Sure, sure, and they and they broadcast these things uh, on some. So our episode will go over out over their website, radiofreerhinecliff.org, and then I'll also put it on my website. And the show goes out, you know, through my website. It goes out to all the podcast apps. You know. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I I was also impressed by your bio. I enjoyed reading it. I grew up in New York City and, and maybe a half generation or so behind you. Well, my parents moved to the city as a young couple and eventually joined the public theater. And they would drag me and my sister there. Thank goodness, though. We thought we saw David Ray plays, Tom Stopper plays, all of those amazing playwrights of the day. What were some of the others? Well, Tom, Thomas, Babe, uh, yeah, Ray, Babe, and... um. The shepherd, yeah, um, he had such a, you know, and Elizabeth Suarez, and um, uh, I mean, he, he he was, those were really high times for, for me as a theater person in New York. Uh, it was like 78, 79, I guess. And, um, you know, New York was still undesirable, you know, back then. Um, nobody wanted to. Yeah, forget New York. In fact, I, I had a chance to buy a co-op, and um, uh, I was subletting on Riverside Drive and Ninety um, Sixth Street, a six-floor, beautiful one-bedroom Riverview, and then a, a third-floor Riverview apartment, one-bedroom apartment, opened up for twenty thousand dollars to buy in to this co-op. This is like seventy-nine. So I contacted my. I didn't have any money. So I contacted my father and I said, hey, you could buy 
me an apartment in New York. And his response was, ah, nobody wants to live in New York. <laughs> and, I'm like, and at the time, it's true. You know, the Bronx was burning. You know, it was a really rough, rough time. And um, and now who knows? I mean, I would love to have had that, still have that apartment today. That would be so cool. My but God. yeah, it was great. It was great. But the public theater was a dream. I mean, Joe Pat, that was so such a busy place. Um you know, he had, I don't know, four or five stages of operating at the same time and um, just all kinds of exciting work being done um, all the time. And um, and he was a real inspiring guy. I mean, I remember I talked to him about producing and he said, the key is to produce something. <laughs> he said, just go produce something. And I went, right, good point. Um, but yeah, he was, Joe Papp was something uh, you know, there's no really nobody. I mean, Oscar Eustace, who runs the public now, is a terrific guy and um, cut, cut from the same cloth. I mean, he's um, Oscar was like a red diaper baby, you know, um, his parents were, you know, very left. And so he was raised in a very radical, progressive environment. And certainly his his career has reflected that, you know, he, the work he's done. Over, I mean, from Angels in America which actually started at the Eureka Theater in San Francisco. I, I don't think I, I don't know if I mentioned that or not in the bio, it's but uh, it is. Yes. Um, yeah, there was a workshop right after I left um, that Oscar and this guy, Tony Taccone, you know, were friends of Tony Kushner's and blah, blah, blah. And, it, and, and they ended up developing the show there. And then it went to LA and then obviously it ended up in the city and, and um, became what it became. But um yeah, those were great times. The 70s, uh, as difficult as it was, uh, both in San Francisco and in New York City, um, in terms of it, it was cheap to live, very cheap, um, but it was dangerous and, and rough. Um, both those cities were. Uh, but, you know, for a young artist, who cares? You know, yeah. we were fearless, you know, so... Um, you know, I just walked a lot because, you know, the subway was 35 cents or something and I didn't have 35 cents. So, you know, but it was great. It was a great, great learning time for me uh, all those years. But anyway, I hadn't realized how much of your early career was in the theater. Very much. Yeah. You know, my 20s and 30s were it was all legitimate theater. Um you know, I had my own theater. You know, I started in a commune, which is almost like a cliche. But you know, I was in. I went to college at San Francisco, San Francisco, at San Francisco State, and yeah. um, before I graduated, uh, we I did a lot of theater there as a director and, and basically self-produced and and directed stuff. And one day, a bunch of my caught my you know fellow students. I said we're having a meeting in this room in the black box and we want you to okay so it was like 20 people there and they said we want to start a theater and we want you to run it and i was like and i said okay <laughs> and i knew you know what did i know i i did i knew whatever i'd learned in school but you know and so i took it seriously and um and uh, one of the guys was this greek uh greek man um john pantalone and uh he said, there's a Greek festival in Marin County. Um, if we could do, if we could put together like a 15 minute, 60 minute piece that's Greek, um, I think we could get the booking. So um, I found Zorba, the Candor Ebb musical based on Zorba the Greek. And I adapted it down to like a 15 minute time frame. Huh. And 
rehearsed it. I'm trying to remember where I rehearsed it. I might have still been in school, come to think of it. Uh, and we got the gig. We did the show. I think we were paid $500, which to us was wow. And sure. nobody got paid, but, you know, we got a check. And I took that and I knocked on the door of this commune on Pine Street in the, in the heart of the Haight-Ashbury. And the couple, two women that ran it said, wow, that's perfect. We always wanted a theater. You know, it was an old church. You know, that's what it was. And it had a big, you know, open space where the, where the pews were. And so we built a theater in there. And then the fire department closed us before we could open. And I went, oh, shit. And I, and I uh, contacted the Methodist Church, which, you know, I, as I found out, was the landlord of the, of the building. And I happened to talk to this guy, Mel Sutterth, Mel, Reverend Mel. And um, he was in charge of properties. And he said, do the show for me. I like the theater. Just do it for me. Private private show. I said, okay. I didn't know what he had in mind, but I said, well, I got nothing to lose. In fact, I think he did end up going to, to the fire department or wherever it was that closed us to try to plead our case to no avail because, you know, we weren't going to put in sprinklers. So um, anyway, we did the show for Mel and he said, that's as good. You guys are great. I have a church basement on 16th and Market. Um, why don't you move in there? And that's what we did. It was a gymnasium size room with a little teeny stage on one end and a projection booth on the other. And it was, you know, it was huge. It was 20 foot ceilings. It was, it was like the perfect place to have a theater. And this is what was happening. You know, this is how, what you could do back then. You could just knock on a door and, okay, come in. Oh, you want to start a theater? Okay, here. And that was it. And it was rent free. And um, we stayed there. Well, I mean, I was there till I left in the late seventies, like 78, 79, when I moved to New York. Um, and it was just, you know, when I think back on those times, like how lucky I was, you know, it produced maybe a half a dozen shows a year. Uh, we did classes. Uh, we did whatever the hell we wanted, you know. Um, we could do Jean Genet one day and Rogers and Hart the next, you know. It was it was all over the map. We did Brecht. We did some Shepard. We, you know, that's where we met. I met Shepard. Sam was was. We were doing uh, Harold Pinter's uh, birthday party, a wonderful play, and uh, we cast uh, Olan as uh, Lulu, the, the prostitute uh, in the play. Uh, Olan was Sam's wife, and uh, and so that's that was how the relationship started. Sam came to see the show, really liked it. Bob Woodruff, who's a longtime colleague and friend of mine, directed the play, and. Um, and that's and he and Sam hooked up right then and there uh, to start and and Woody started to become Sam's director, and um, and then when Wood did the show, I'll flash forward when he did Curse of the Starving Class, at, which was the American premiere of that play at the Public, and and he and Bob said, you know, hey, come with me, you can assist me, and then take over. And I did, and um, and that was kind of the beginning of my career in in New York. Was you know was that was Kirsten Starving class of the public, and who was in that? It was like Olympia Dukakis played the the mom. Um, I, re I remember it. Jim, did you see that show? I think so. Oh my God, Jim Gammon played her husband, who's who's passed, and Olympia's passed now. Michael J. Pollard was in it. I don't know if you know him. Yes, of course. Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, of course. It was a great cast. Kenny Walsh, 
um, I'm trying to think who else was in that show. Yeah. But it was fun. It was fun as hell. Um, I also saw Alive the Mind sometime later. Oh, you, you did? Yeah, and as as many things as I missed, I saw some amazing theater. I saw the original A Chorus Line off-Broadway at the Public Theater, too. My parents had to drag me to, to lots of those plays back then, but seeing A Chorus Line in a little, one of those public theaters, you know, little rooms, I knew I was watching something remarkable. Wow, wow. It was a great musical, but the dialogue back, but actually the dialogue back then was considered pretty edgy for the day. I mean, in retrospect, the subject matter may not seem too big a deal now, but back then it, it kind of was. Yes, yeah, totally. Yeah, Course Line did break barriers. I mean, it was really one of the first shows that, that spoke truth about uh, a, a dancer's career and what what it's like, you know, to be... Yeah objectified and um was that great song uh dance 10 looks three i think is the name of the song yes um yes, yes. you know it, it was it was people didn't really realize how brutal show business can be and um and though joyful as the play show was it, it really did show kind of the dark side of the of the business as well and you know, Michael Bennett certainly knew that side backwards and forwards. But um, yeah, that was a great show. So going back to your school days at San Francisco uh, State, what do you think your fellow classmates saw in you that led them to believe that you could produce and direct their shows at the time? I think it was. Um, I think it was the fact that um, outside of whatever um, schoolwork, so to speak. Uh, I, I did, you know, whatever the assignments might be. Um, I did a lot of independent work and the school was open to that. So I, for instance, I staged a production of Leroy Jones's The Dutchman. I don't know if you know that play or Amir Baraka. Right. I know him. He was still Leroy Jones back then. But um, very super powerful, brutal play. And in fact, I remember my parents came to that show and they were like, Jesus, this is whoa they had a really hard time in it um because it was about racism you know and it was it was a very violent intense play but i you know that and um and other things i just self-produced while i was at school i think they just got the sense that um that maybe i could be you know that i would be bold enough to to take it on and i and i wasn't i i you know there's no I mean, somebody has to run the place, you know. Yeah, so you know, I, you know, they just were actors. They were actors looking for work, is what they were. And so they said, "Well, you're a director and a producer, so maybe you can create something where, which will give me work." Which is exactly what we did. And um, I mean, work in parentheses, you know. But nobody was getting paid back then. But um, uh, I think that was, you know, it was just because I was very aggressively doing stuff and it's funny when i think back my son is an actor and um he went to usc uh, uh you know in california for, as, a, as for his master's in acting and um you know unbeknownst to i mean he kept me up to speed but he did the same thing when he was in school he overachieved he was like yeah i'll do all the classwork but i don't want to mount you know true west separately just as an outside project or 
whatever it was. And and so I'm kind of like, that's cool. I'm I, I'm glad that somehow uh, that was passed along, you know, unconsciously to him. Um, this work ethic, I think, is what it is. Uh, and, and I was raised with that. That was the other thing to answer your question. You know, my father uh, and my mother both worked. Uh, you know, they were both Depression era kids and um, neither of them graduated high school. Uh, they both had to go to work when they were 14, 15, 16 uh, for their families. And um, and that was a hard life. And and they though they succeeded, I mean, they were successful in there. They were both in, in ended up being in retail. Retail sales. My dad worked for Macy's in California. And um, and again, I think that that was a hand down to me because what am I? I'm a salesman. You know, that's what I do. I sell stuff. And um, it's not furniture, but, uh, you know, um, the concept is similar. And um, so I think I inherited some aspect of that from him, the work ethic and the ability to sell. I used to go to watch him sell furniture at Macy's, uh, you know, on a, a night that I didn't have a babysitter or something. I just go hang out in the store and watch him and see what he does. And um, so somehow that was handed down. Maybe that's what these other people saw in me. I, I don't know. But but, you know, it's, I have been running theaters ever since since I was 21. <laughs> I've been running theaters, even in New York. You know, uh, I ran a theater there for years. And, you know, it's just it just was my destiny, I guess. I don't know. Well, that's funny. My grandfather, who might have been a few years older than your father, I, I'm guessing. But my grandfather sold furniture, too. But he was did it in uh, in Midtown, Manhattan. Um, but he might've been a little older. Perhaps. Yeah. 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 My dad was born in like 1912, I think. Um, yeah, I think, I think my grandfather was born around 1917. Uh, did you grow up, did you grow up around theater? Did your parents expose you to theater when you were growing up? Not at all. Uh, that's the funny thing, you know, in elementary school and ultimately in high school, but even in elementary school, I mean, I have vivid memories of doing you know, almost stand up. Um, I don't know if you know the comic Shelley Berman. Yes. Right. So when I was a when I was a kid, my parents, for whatever reasons, had an album of Shelley Berman doing his comedy. Oh yeah, yeah. Didn't he have a phone routine as well? I mean, most of us remember Newhart with his phone routine, but didn't Berman also do that? Maybe even first. Yes, absolutely right. Yeah, he was always it was always this. He was always, oh, you know, he was like the first out neurotic Jewish comic, but totally out. You know, he wasn't repressing his neuroses. He was flaunting his neuroses. And that became his comedy. And um, yes, he was neuroses forward. Yeah, no, he did, because, you know, that was. That was the beginning of all that. Mike Nichols, Elaine May, they certainly yeah. did that. Um, in fact, they were all together in Second City together yeah. right. back in the day. But um, yep. But I did a Shelley Berman routine in, in front of my like 11th, uh, I mean, uh, fifth grade class. You know, it was just like weird. And um, that's fine. And likewise, I did plays in elementary school and then in high school. Of course, I did a lot of theater uh, as an actor. So, yeah, I mean, I think it just, it wasn't until I was in college that I actually realized I could, you know, there was a potential career here that I could do this for a living. 
And um, and I was, you know, I was became kind of a hippie in um, in the 60s. I mean, it was impossible. Either you became a hippie or you didn't, you know. Um, and uh, it was attractive to me, that alternative lifestyle. Um, and, and it still is in the sense that I didn't follow. Uh, I followed a risky path. I didn't um, I didn't really uh, I didn't worry about security ever um, as a kid or as a young adult. Um, so I didn't mind being broke or living on nothing. Um, granted, you could live on almost nothing back then, but, um, and I think that carried over. And, and in some ways, to my own detriment, I mean, I've been at the Bardavon a long time and, and I have, I've always, I always had this attitude of, and I think a lot of theater people do, of, um, I just want to do the work. I don't really care about the money. And so I, and unfortunately that filtered down to everybody that I work with because I didn't think about it. And until, you know, the last 10 or so years um, when I'm realizing, wait a minute, I'm going to lose, you know, I got to find money for everybody, including myself. Uh, so we grow a stronger organization and, and we've done that now successfully. Everybody's getting paid what they should be paid or, or close to it. And, and we're committed to really substantial annual raises and, and it's created a, a really good environment at work. Cause generally nonprofit people are, you know, of course underpaid, like so many people are underpaid. And, um, but we're fortunate that we were able to, uh, to build that up. So, yeah, but uh, going back to those days though, it was very, um, it was really just about the work. That's that's all. And it, I'm still like that. But now, you know, I get paid a reasonable amount of money. So that's good. Yeah, because <laughs> I can't do this forever. Yeah. So I got to stash some money. So. Well, the jury's out as far as that goes. But did you did you have a sense once that it would uh, back then that it would all work out and that the money would just come? Or did you have an aha moment and, and finally realize that you had to take measures? That's right. Yeah, yeah. It was like it was so, so one day I'll be responsible, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll live a more responsible life. And, um, you know, I mean, I had, uh, you know, I was working, always working multiple jobs in New York City. You know, I always had like two or three shows that I was working on at the same time. I was very fortunate. I always worked in the theater and only in the theater in New York in my years in New York City. Um, but that meant working you know, always more than one show. Uh, luckily, two of Sam's plays, um, which I supervised, he's unusual in the fact that he generally when a show opens, um, the stage manager takes over, uh, the director leaves, the playwright generally isn't around. And uh, and that was the case with, Steve, with uh, Sam. But he always wants somebody in addition to the stage manager. He wants somebody like me a director who knows his work, understands it, and can communicate with actors uh, that, you know, I'm not saying stage managers can't do that, but they're not directors. So, uh, and I knew Sam's work, you know, from the 70s. So, so anyway, so that was a very great gig. I mean, Fool for Love, A Lie of the Mind, Curse the Starving Class, those were all shows I lived with from the moment from first rehearsal through till it closed. Well, Fool for Love, I left before it closed, but, um, because that was like three years or something. That was where, this is a good story. Bruce Willis was the understudy 
for right. uh, Will Patton. Will Patton was playing the lead back then. Yeah. It was Ed Harris first. Ed Harris and Kathy Baker were the first two who were fantastic. And then um, and then Kathy stuck around. Ed left. And then Will Patton took over, who's a fabulous actor. Yeah. And then Bruce was the understudy. So when Will finally had to leave the show, he left the show. Um, we put Bruce in. And we did so then we didn't have an understudy. And so and I kept auditioning actors at one. And the, and the producers kept saying, well, we're trying to get a star. We're waiting for a star. We're waiting. This is so ironic, the story. I'm waiting for a star. And Bruce was doing eight shows a week, keeping the show open with no understudy. So if he got sick, you know, then what? And this went on for months. And finally, um, Bruce said, you know what, Chris? Fuck this. I'm quitting because I'm not going to be a pawn in these producers game. I've had it. I went, wow, okay. And then we found a replacement and Bruce left and I can't even remember who went in. And then he went out to LA, auditioned for Moonlighting, bingo, career. Hmm. Had we given Bruce Willis the job in New York in full, full love, it's quite possible that would have been the highlight of his entire career. And he never would have become Bruce Willis. You know, I mean, this is the, this is show business. This is a show, show business story. And, um, and, but it's true. And, you know, he wouldn't have gone out to LA to audition because he would have had a job in New York doing eight shows a week, which is what he wanted to do. And he was bartending. That was his other gig. I'm uh, sad that I can't read all the well, stuff about it now. It's, it's, it's depressing. But, um, wasn't he bartending with, at the, at the same bar as John Goodman back then? Everybody was bartending, you know? It's just, right, exactly. what else do you do? You're an actor. You wait tables, you know? So let, what, what were your years in New York City then? It was basically, it was like 78 to 88, roughly, is the period, I think. Or maybe 78, 79. I think Curse was in 78, and Lie of the Mind was, I think, in, 70, in 80, 88 or 89. Um Lie of the Mind was an extraordinary experience because of the actors. It was just... It was an amazing... I mean, that cast. I mean, Geraldine Page, just let's start there, who was not well during that whole show run, but she was amazing. She would do her scenes, and this was actually one of my... Me and the stage manager shared this part of the job. Then she'd go to her dressing room, lay on the floor, and pass out because she needed to rest and then you would just then you would just knock on her door and go jerry two minutes and she'd be right up okay and go right on the stage right from being asleep boom um but you know will Patton was in that show as well amanda Plummer, um and uh ann wedgworth who yep. uh, and, and geraldine page who at one time or another both those women were married to rip torn so that that, that was interesting dynamically um jim gammon again was in that uh aiden quinn that's where i met aiden actually who oh, lives up here now and i, I, about that. I see aiden all the time and um he was wonderful uh and david strathair who i knew uh from san francisco days in fact david you know who he is david strathair who david strathair he sure 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 he was in a number of john sales movies part of that whole crew yeah, yeah, exactly. Lots of John Sales movies. Oh, yeah, no, no, he was in there. Yeah, so, 
So David was in that production of The Birthday Party at the Eureka <laughs> Theater. Oh, wow. Oh, back, you know, back in 70, whatever. That's where I met Dave. And then, pardon? Was he from Chicago? David, uh, I'm not sure where he's from, actually. Part of, what was the, that Chicago theater company John Malkovich is in, was in? Steppenwolf? Yeah. No, he didn't come from Steppenwolf. Okay. David, okay. when I met him, he had just graduated from Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus uh, School. Okay. He was a clown. David was a, David was a professional clown. Not that you ever get to see that. His performances, like so many actors, they have these hidden abilities that you never get to see. But no, he was, uh, and I cast him in Lie as an understudy. He understudied, Harvey Keitel was the other lead in that. And so um, actually David understudied, you understudied Harvey? I think he did another wonderful actor named Bill Raymond, uh, who was a Mabu Mines, who was a member of the Mabu Mines. He, I cast him to understudy Harvey. And, um, uh, and right after opening, uh, before Bill had really even had any rehearsals, he had seen the show a couple of times, but previews were long and we made a lot of changes. So it was intense. Sam added an entire band to the show, uh, you know, <laughs> just before previews started, the Red Clay Ramblers, which was incredible, but like, holy shit, we've got to work a whole orchestra in there. Anyway, um, so anyway, Bill was on, he hired, right? He's seen the show. Then Harvey's wife at the time, Lorraine Bracco, right. um, was pregnant and about to have a baby and, in fact, went into labor. So Harvey disappeared. He couldn't do the show. So we had to put Bill on with no rehearsal, okay, holding the script, um, and, and he's replacing Harvey on top of it. So I had to make the announcement to the audience that Harvey Cartel will not be performing. So we lost people right there. And, um, and Bill Raymond, his first scene, the first scene Harvey had, or Bill in this case, was uh, having was with Geraldine uh, in her part of the set, um, jumping up and down on the bed, having a fit on the bed. And his script pages flew into the air and sprinkled all around. And Geraldine did not miss a beat and stayed in character, said, that's okay, honey, I got it, I got it, I'll get this together for you, honey, no problem. And she shuffled the pages, put them in order, handed it back to Bill, and the play went on. I mean, it was just, it was a wild and woolly show, I'll tell you, I'll tell you that, because it had such incredible actors, you know, who were who were um, willing to go go wherever they had to go, so anyway. Yeah, that was a great time, but skipping ahead a bit from New York City to Poughkeepsie and the Bardavon. That institution's been around a long time, hasn't it? What what year did it open? The Bardavon? 1869. Yeah. 1869. And it, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's the a, oldest theater in New York State. Oh, oh, that I did not know. Weird as that may seem. I mean, I should say the oldest continuously operating. It never stopped. Oh. I mean, it closed for a minute in the 70s when they were going to tear it down. But it was saved and, and, you know, it's been, it's a great, you know, it's a great space, of course, but uh, it is unique in that it's, that it's, you know, I mean, think about, you know, was Mark Twain played there, you know, the first year it was open. I mean, it's like Sarah Bernhardt played, you know, the Booths, the Barrymores, you know, live, all these people played that theater. It's, it's kind of, it's mind blowing, really, when you think about it. And, you know, when we had Pacino, um, 
you know, its relationship with Estelle Parsons is worth hitting on because uh, because it's it's just brought us so much extraordinary work. Um, Estelle, if you don't know who she is, um, she got an Oscar for Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, as I told her, for screaming, you got an Oscar for screaming. She goes, yeah, I'm crying, screaming and crying. So it's going to get you an Oscar. Yeah. And her scenes with Gene Hackman. That's correct. Yeah. She played Gene Hackman's wife or girlfriend, I guess wife. And then weren't they in the same car with Michael J. Pollard, come to think about it? Exactly. Who ended up in Curse of the Starter Class. So it's, it was a small world. But, um, <laughs> um, but Estelle, I met Estelle when we... Um, we were showing Bonnie and Clyde, the film. This was 20, over 20 years ago. And I knew that Estelle had a house in High Falls. So um, so we contacted her through her agent and uh, and said, listen, we're screening Bonnie and Clyde. And if Estelle feels like it, um, I, we'd love to have her do a Q&A after the, after the film. And he said, okay, I'll ask her. And she called right, she called right back. She said, well, I'd love to, I'd love to do that. That'd be great. Can I bring my husband and my son? I said, of course. And so she shows up at the theater and she goes, okay, you know, before the screening. And we had this crazy idea. She said, I'm going to go get some dinner and because I've seen the movie and I'll come back, you know, and I'll do the Q and A. Okay, great. I said, when, we, instead of introducing you, we had this idea that um, because the film ends, as you may remember, with uh, the machine gun blast, it was very controversial at the time. The slow motion death of Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway in the car, and they're all tumbling and Blood. bullets everywhere. You know, it was bloody awful. I said, we had this idea um, that the credits go down and we project, which we had, a gobo, which is a, a, an illusion on the on a lighting illusion of machine gun bullets across the screen with the sound effect of machine gun going and then the whole screen turns to red and you come stumbling out being shot from behind the screen and she went i love it i said you want to rehearse she goes i don't need a rehearsal we'll be fine and she and sure enough she came back we did the effect it was perfect she stumbled out fell to the floor and she was just like 75 then i think that's how old she was and um, total gamer. And um, I think she did a great Q&A. And then we started a relationship and, and she did a couple of things with the, the Philharmonic for us. Um, she did Mendelssohn's Midsummer. She did the Shakespearean narration. She did Bernstein's uh, Kaddish, uh, where she recited in English and in, in um, Hebrew. Um, she was she was just great. And then she brought us, uh, she said to me one day, she, when she was at the bar lounge, she goes, you know, this would be the perfect place for us to uh, try out Salome. And I said, you mean the one you're working on with Al Pacino, Marissa Tomei, and Diane Weist? And Dave Strathairn, actually, was playing John the Baptist back then. And uh, she said, yeah, you think it would work? I said, yes, it would definitely work. And um, she goes, okay, you have to meet Al. I go, fine. So they were doing the show at St. Anne's uh, in Brooklyn, at St. Anne's Theater. It was before it was in its present location, but it was, it was a great space. Anyway, so I went and saw the show um, and, and they called it Salome the Reading uh, mm -hmm. because they all had scripts, but they'd been working on it for a year at the actor studio. So it was all, they all had it, but for whatever reasons, they wanted to present it as a reading, which limited the staging, but it didn't really matter. 
anyway, so I saw the show and of course I loved it. And, um, and then I went back and back and met Al and he was great. And, um, and he was like, Oh, ooh, uh, okay. Okay. I got to come see the theater. I'm like, yeah, please. So he came up and saw the Bardavon and he walked very much like Groucho Marx in my memory, because he was just kind of bent over and, yes. and moving up and down like Groucho used to do. And got up on the stage and I told him, you know, Sarah Bernhardt played here. Um, Sarah Bernhardt is who Oscar Wilde wrote Salome for. Um, and he was like, oh, oh, I'm always chasing her. She's chasing me. And this is perfect. Let's do it. And so we did. And we rehearsed and, and played for a week or so. This is back in 2003. And then it moved to Broadway and uh, to the Barrymore Theater. And um, the producers complained to me that... Uh, that Sam, that Al insisted at the Barrymore that they build a thrust onto the stage because we have a thrust at the Bardavon, which is really just a kind of an extension that goes a little closer to the audience past the proscenium. And uh, which which Al did use at our space, he, the, his performance got stronger and stronger and deeper and deeper each day that he performed to the point where he was crawling across the stage banging his head into the floor, begging for a Salome to dance for him, which is the whole story. Um, anyway, and it cost him $20,000 or something to add this, this thing. I said, what are you, you're going to sell out every single performance of this show. What are you complaining about? And they go, no, you're right, you're right. It's just, I'm just telling you, it's the Bardavon's fault. I went, okay, fine, whatever. Because he was so close to the audience at the Bardavon. Yeah, he wanted the same experience. He right. wanted to have the same experience. And those two the theaters are very similar. The Barrymore and the Bardavon are, are very similar. They're both about 900 seats. They're, you know, very intimate, though the Bardavon's quite a bit older. Um, you know, the, the style is very similar. In fact, the, the theater right now, what, what we see today is the 1920s renovation. This is, this is the 1928 interior that they created changing from the 19th century stuff. You used to have a second balcony at the Bardemont. Above the balcony that's there, there was another balcony. Oh. And the whole balcony used to wrap all the way around to Ooh. where the, we call them the organ lofts are now. You used to fit 2,000 people at the Bardemont uh, originally. Right? Now it's 900 because yeah. they just, well, you know, they lowered the ceiling, well. <clears throat> lost the second balcony. It's There isn't a second though balcony that's now hidden above the ceiling is there i mean it, like it's closed off possibly is there there is there most no there is definitely a space in the attic that you can that major donors will take will take them up to the attic and you can uh see the 19th century um graffiti that is on that we've preserved that's on the original dome that is above the ceiling you see today and the dome there's two domes in the space the dome you can see and the dome the original dome you can see pictures of it in the lobby but it's very cool and the original dome had these little windows that opened and closed which is how they you know they didn't have electricity so that's how light came in or yeah, out or, you yeah. know it's it's a great old space i do remember it's funny because i do remember in going to broadway theaters growing up and there were some that were so tall and, you know, you didn't really have a sense of it from the outside, but you'd go up like staircase after staircase, balcony, there'd be like, you'd be in the second or third balcony up and watching the, the, the action on the stage, almost like, you know, straight down practically. So, so you started your tenure at the Bardavon in 1994. 
Yeah, yeah. The beginning. Yeah, I started in 94. Was you it? know, what's funny about that is that I got um, originally UPAC, uh, the Ulster Performing Arts Center, was looking for an executive director. And that, also in 94. And I applied for that job. And then I went to Lincoln Center, went to the Lincoln Center Library to do research on UPAC to get, you know, so before I was interviewed to get some, you know, sense of the theater and its background. And while I was researching it, I saw in a, in a TDF um, newsletter that I happened to run into um, that the Bardavon was looking for the exact same job. And I was like, wow, that, how, what are the chances? So I applied for the Bardavon job too. And to give you a sense of how those theaters were so different back then, um, I did a, I did a lot of schmoozing of, I lived in, I live in Ulster County. I live in Stone Ridge right now. And um Oh, you do. And so I wanted the UPAC job because it's like 15 minutes from my house. And so I started finding out who was on the board and schmoozing them and, you know, just starting my campaign. Then the Bardemont called me in for an interview. It went very well. I came home. I called UPAC. I said, hey, just so you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get either job. And, you know, realizing that you can play both potential employers off of each other, right? Yeah. Please interview me. And they were like, oh, don't worry. We'll get to you. I went fine. Second interview with Bardavon went well, called UPAC. Just so you know, you know, you haven't even called me in yet, but, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, third interview with Bardavon, they hire me, right? Um, six months later, UPAC finally hires somebody. So I'm like, wow. And then, of course, tw- I don't know, 12 years later, we take over UPAC. So it took me 12 years, but I ended up with both jobs. Um, you know, we took over that theater in 06 and we gave all, you know, we all got a little raise from it, but nothing like what you should get if you're running two theaters. And by that time, we also had the Hudson Valley Philharmonic, which we also got some money to help keep alive, but we never gave ourselves you know, the kind of raise you would give if you're running two theaters. Realizing you can play both uh, potential employers off of each other. Any other business, and you would be making a ton more money. It's in like in a corporate environment. No, I would have been rich. In the corporate sphere, yes. I got offered a job at ABC. When I lived in New York City, um, part of the way I made money was to be a reader. I would read scripts. I read scripts for the public theater all the time um and you they paid you five dollars for every script you read and wrote a little report on or off off broadway you could go see a show and write a report so i was seeing like 10 things a week you know just and reading as much as i could and then i also worked for abc as a reader and they paid like 50 dollars, you know to read a book and do a report on it and i was good at both those jobs and so abc offered me a job and they called it a ladder position they said, you can climb the corporate ladder, starting with this. And I was going to be Bridget Potter's assistant. And Bridget Potter is still a very highly respected documentary producer for HBO. And uh, but then she was at ABC. And I was like, in my head, I was like, well, that means I got to wear a suit and a tie and I got to go to fucking work every day, nine to five. I don't want to. That's not I'm not here to do that. And so I turned it down. And my I remember my girlfriend at the time. Um, was like, are you nuts? <laughs> this is ABC is offering you a real job. I got, yeah, no, but I don't, it's not, 
nah, I don't, I don't want to do that. And I didn't. And so that mentality persisted, you know, until, and I was going to answer that earlier question, when we really realized that we needed, um, needed to get raises is when I lost, uh, I had a development director, a grant writer, who was very good and um, who got hired away by the city of Kingston. Yeah. And she didn't get paid that much more, but she got paid more and she lives in Kingston. It was easier to get. And we have a great relationship and she's still very helpful and, and wonderful. But replacing her was impossible. I could not, for what I was paying, it was yeah. like I was $20,000 under what anybody would take to do that job. And I was, and I realized, oh, holy yeah. Christ, yeah. what about my yeah. job or what about? Stevens, you know, all these other people who work here who will eventually have to be replaced. And that's when I really, it really kind of kickstarted this whole stabilization plan, as we call it, to to raise enough money to uh, to replace everybody, you know, with with or, or to pay everybody what they deserve and then have enough. So if anybody leaves, you have enough to actually hire somebody else. So it's great. It's been great. OK, so just to begin to wind things down. Because um, I don't know how much more time you have. No, I, 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 this is actually a day off. This is something I try to do now. I always actually take a day off when, when it's a day off. Instead of, oh, I can write a grant. I've got, you know. So anyway. You can't afford a grant writer. So no, um, no, I have a grant writer. But, I, you know, I, I was able to figure it all out. But yeah, it wasn't know. easy. Well, we've been talking a lot mostly about your theater background. But the Bardavon and, and UPAC as well are known to most people as music venues. Uh, for instance, on March 1st, I'm going to see Sean Colvin, Mark Cohen, and Sarah DeRose, who will be performing together. Then the next night, uh, March 2nd, Elvis Costello will be at UPAC. Um, uh, I, 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 both venues are, are essentially music venues, correct? Yeah. I mean, we tried to do theater back when I first started. Uh but unless it had like Al Pacino, you know, right. if it had a star in it, um, it was sellable. If without a star, it was, which is, you know, we're not unique. I mean, um, you know, Broadway has the same problem. You know, if, if you're trying to do something serious or a serious play, it's very hard without that a hook of some name. sort, you know. Yeah. yeah, either a name or, or, you know, some sensation like a chorus line, you know, it didn't have any names. But it was, you know, Hamilton. There was no names in that, but it was sensational. Um, and it's very hard to. Uh, if, and so when we're here in the regions, you know, outside of the city, it's super hard. So, yeah, the emphasis has always been on music. What well, we have been able to do extraordinarily good theater for young people. Um, we've been able to really expand on the kinds of theater we do for you know, K through 12. Um, and there's some wonderful stuff out there. So, and we produce some of our own. We have a, a play about racism. We've been touring for years called Rhapsody in Black. Um, and we're working on a new piece about um, Hispanic racism called Through the Fire. Both of these projects came out of Estelle and the Actors Studio. They were both projects that Estelle said, come on down and look at this play. I think it's good. I agreed. We put it on the road. It's been touring ever since. And this new piece, which we just looked at last year, and, and we're in fact the actor just finished a run on Broadway in um, between Riverside and Crazy. Victor Almansar, wonderful actor, um, and he's written a piece uh, about the racism he's encountered 
uh, in the military, actually, um, which is an interesting uh, project. So we'll be touring that as well and, um, and doing that locally. But yeah, music, 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 music. I mean, yeah. um, you know, I grew up in, as I said, in the 60s. So what that meant was I went to the Fillmore every week. Uh, and so I saw like Jimi Hendrix three times, you know, um, yeah. I, I, everybody. I saw every freaking act you can imagine. You know, the Grateful Dead when they were all alive, you know, um, Janis Joplin, everybody. Um, so I had grew up with this extraordinary love of, of music and of rock and roll. And I was a lifelong Dylan fan. So the fact that uh, that we've had Bob Dylan five times now rehearse for several days in both our theaters. And then we presented him a couple of times at Hutton Brickyards back in 17 or whenever that was, 14 maybe. I can't remember. It was a while ago. And he's coming back. He's going to rehearse with us again um, in a, a time I cannot tell you um, <laughs> it, it, this year. Uh, and, you know, and he, he with us for four or five days. And, um, you know, that's just such a treat. And Natalie Merchant, same thing. I mean, we've we've worked with Natalie a million times. And she, I don't know, I think she started at least three tours by rehearsing with us and giving a show, you know, to kick off the tour. Um, and Jack DeJanette is, is, you know, we just started this relationship with Jack about a year ago or a little less than a year ago. You know, he, he, his wife, Lydia, called and said, you know, Jack's turning 80. He wants to keep playing, but he doesn't want to tour anymore. And I was like, I can relate. So he's got a show with Sabian Glover lined up, a show with Dave Holland and Jason Moran. And then they said, John Baptiste is interested. And I went, oh, my God. And so I said, OK, we'll produce all these things for you. <laughs> we're fine with that. And so we did it at Woodstock Playhouse, two shows. They were fabulous. And the Baptiste show in December at UPAC, I'm telling you, it was one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. Baptiste is like walks on water. I mean, he's just an extraordinary artist. Mm -hmm. and, um, and now we're working on Santana for this year. Jack and Carlos Santana. I mean, what's better than that? And a bunch of other artists um, on top that we're just filling in now. We have a date that we can't announce yet, but uh, yeah, it's well. going to happen. And so it's so these relationships, which is really what it's always been about in show business with Estelle. Who is still alive at the age of 95, I see. I'm working. She's still working the same as she did 20 years ago. She goes to the studio, the actor studio. She runs classes. She's acting in shows. There's no stopping her. In fact, I have a piece. I have a Sam Shepard play that Jack and Estelle have agreed to do um, with Estelle doing the verbal part and Jack playing drums, which is a piece Sam wrote that I saw. He wrote with Joe Chaikin. I guess in the 80s it was, early 80s, um, that they performed with Joe doing the words and, and Sam himself doing the drumming. So we're going to put that together. It's, it's, it's no date has been set, but um, it's kind of a continuing relationship with Jack and Estelle, for that matter. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Natalie, Bob Dylan, I mean, all these relationships, even David Byrne, you know, we were the first show, the first show theater to do... Um, you know, that Broadway show, uh, whatever it's called, American Utopia. American um, uh, Utopia. First done at UPEC. I mean, which was an amazing thing. And we rehearsed some other show many years ago of his as well. So, yeah. So the space has been um, more and more artists and musicians just love the space and take advantage of the fact that we really welcome them to come and work their stuff out.
you know um so it's been cool it's been it's kind of an amazing i've been very lucky you know fortunate to be um and i'm grateful for it to be able to do this you know my whole life 50 years of doing of doing shows it's kind of i mean i'm glad i turned down that abc job let's put it that way because <laughs> i'd be pushing some sh schlock tv show right now that nobody really cares about and um you know i wouldn't have had the career i had so i might have had more money but maybe maybe yeah but i'd probably live in la you know, which is even worse, you know, than, than Stone Ridge. <laughs> yeah. I love Stone Ridge. You know, I love Ulster County, the whole Hudson Valley, you know, Me too. like many people say, you go away, but when you come back to this beautiful part of the world, it's kind of like, wow, I live here. This is nice. Yes, it is. All right. Well, Chris Silva is the executive director of both the Bardavon in Poughkeepsie, as well as uh, UPAC, the Ulster Performing Arts Center in Kingston, New York. You can visit bardavon.org and buy tickets and check out the schedule uh, for both venues there and follow them on social media. I recommend getting on their mailing list. Uh, I plan on being at the UPAC for two shows next week. and uh, Just let us know. We'll get you in. No problem. I recommend that any everybody check out those shows and, and, and um, everything else coming up. Thanks a million, Chris, for coming on uh, Film Wax. Uh, it was great. I hope we can do it again. No problem. Yes. Great. Thank you, Adam. All right. Take care. Mm.